have exciting things to learn from uh, Romans chapter 9. And so we're going to finish it. We're going to finish it today. So that's going to be exciting. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come and uh, we are so grateful. I hope, Lord, that we are gaining appreciation that our salvation is part of a greater purpose, a greater plan that even began before we were born, even before creation. We were in your heart. We were in your purposes. We were in your plan. And we can celebrate Christmas for the simple fact that in your great grace, in your great mercy, you have chosen us in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray as we look at these things that we will understand that we serve a great and awesome God who chose your son to be the satisfaction for our sins. You chose your son to come at just the right time. And yet, Lord, you have also chosen us in your mercy, though we had nothing to offer you and were not even aware of you. And so, Lord, we come with humble hearts. I know it makes our head hurt when we look at these things, but I pray again that it will make our hearts burst with great humility, great worship, and great faith in such a great God. You're the greatest gift of all, Lord, and so we look at your word now with expectant hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, we're looking at the word responsibility, responsibility in light of God's sovereignty. And we said that there, we're at the final uh, part of, God, of Paul's argument in Romans 9. And if you look at verses 30 through 33, that's what we're looking at. And we began to look at this last week. And notice how verse 30 begins. It begins with a simple question. What shall we say then? What shall we say then? And if you look at your notes, you have at the top of your notes, there's two options when we look at these conclusions. When we we look at a study of Romans 9, you have two options. You can come at it there on the left side. It says, what shall you say? What shall you say? And we know from our study of Romans 9 that when Paul uses that kind of terminology, he's addressing someone who's coming at God's word from a natural viewpoint, from the viewpoint of unbelief. From the viewpoint of human reasoning, you say, well, where'd you get that? Well, look at verse 19, Romans 9, verse 19. You will say to me, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And he identifies who this you is. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And so we can come from the perspective of our own understanding, our own limited knowledge and we can come from that perspective. In fact, in Romans 2.1 and 2.3 and Romans 3.5, all throughout this letter, he's, he's, he's dialoguing off and on from man's perspective, from God's perspective. Well, listen, if you look at Romans 9 from man's perspective, you're going to come to a natural conclusion of unbelief that's built on human reasoning. And here's what you're going to say. If it's all of God... There must be no room for human responsibility. If it's all of God, then there must be no room for human responsibility. But on the right side of that chart that you have there, there's a different perspective. And this is the perspective of verses 30 through 33. 
It's not what shall you say, but what shall we say? Paul is identifying with us and he's saying, look, we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we who take God at his word, here's the biblical conclusion of belief in divine revelation. Because I don't care how you slice it or dice it, Romans 9 exists in the Bible. What we have been studying is there and we can either believe it or we can doubt it. But the biblical conclusion of faith is this. It's all of God, and there's still room for human responsibility. It's all of God, and there's still room for human responsibility. In fact, let's read it. Let's read the conclusion. Romans 9, 30 through 33. Notice what it says. What shall we, we who are believers, who know our place, who know that God is creator and we are the creature, that he's the potter and we are the clay pots, that... He is the Redeemer and we are the ones, sinners. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by what? By what? By faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness or literally a law of righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by what? Faith. But as if it were based on what? Works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever what? Believes in him will not be put to shame. And so you see all over that passage, faith, faith, believe, responsibility. You must accept Christ. And so, in fact, you could make this conclusion from what we just read. Because salvation is all of God, faith is the only natural response to unconditional election. In other words, if, if, if God's the one doing it, then there's only one logical thing to do. Submit to that, receive it. By faith. Well, in any case, God has not only chosen who will be saved, but how they will be saved. And they'll be saved by grace through faith alone and Christ alone. So, in these verses that we just read, we have four conclusions. We hit the first one last week. Let's look at it. Here it is God's sovereignty does not eliminate human responsibility. We can teach what we have taught through Romans 9 and we come to the conclusion in verses 30 through 33 that God's sovereignty does not eliminate human responsibility. And I still love this sentence and I I want you to, to get your head around this. I want you to get this in your heart and here it is. God's sovereignty and human responsibility are not equal. So when we say we hold to them both, we don't hold to them equally because that'd be like a mouse and an elephant, elephant being equal. Okay, that's like an ant and a, and a man being equal. Well, I believe in both ants and men equal. You know, I believe in them both. But who's going to get the in, in an in a arm wrestling contest? Who's going to win the ant or the man? Okay, and when between a man and God, who's going to win the arm wrestling contest? God. So we, we, we believe we do not believe they are equals. Because the Bible clearly exalts God's sovereignty over human responsibility, but it does so in a way that does not eliminate human responsibility. Now, I've got uh, 
all sorts of stuff that we went through there, and uh, I will resist. I'll, maybe uh, when we come back at the first of the year, we're going to look at some of the really sticky questions that come out of Romans 9 before we, we totally leave that chapter. And I found some more historical quotes that I think will help you to see that, one, people have struggled with this, this issue throughout history, and, and they've come to some, they haven't solved the mystery, but they've come to some really biblical, balanced conclusions. And so we'll, we'll read some of those and look at some of those in the weeks uh, uh, in, 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 at the first of the year. But for now... I just want you to see that last week we really established God's sovereignty does not eliminate human responsibility. So, second conclusion. Here's the second conclusion that we want to look at today, and it's this. Salvation is our response to His ability. Salvation is our response to His ability to save us by faith alone in Christ alone. And you see that in verses 30 through 32 that we read. In fact, I always like this. Uh, this is probably the, one of the best things. If you want to think about this word, responsibility. There's a definite responsibility in these verses. And responsibility is what? Well, here's how I like to think about responsibility. It is my response to his ability. And you can take that all through Scripture. In fact, that's just a great definition of faith. It's my response to his ability. That's what responsibility is. When we say we have a responsibility in light of God's sovereignty, look, it's all of him. It's all of Him. So what is my responsibility? I need to respond to what He can do, not think that I can do it in my own power. And so we see this in verses 30 through 32. Now, when you look at these two verses, here's how I'd like to summarize them. First of all, the first point you really see in these verses is this. How to become a Christian without being religious. How do I become a Christian without being religious? The Gentiles... They became Christians without being religious. Look at verse 30 again. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness. See, they, did, they weren't trying to be religious. They weren't trying to be saved. They weren't trying to please the one true God. They didn't know God's law. They weren't pursuing Him. And yet, what did they attain? Righteousness. But it was a righteousness by what? By faith, by faith. So they became Christians without being religious. Now, notice what the description I have under that. Many Gentiles, many Gentiles who did not actively run after the race, because that's the idea. The idea of pursue here and the, act, the idea of attain, these are the same words from Philippians 3. Paul said, I press towards the mark of the prize of the high calling. I'm running this race. I'm running, running. And here's what Paul's saying here. He's using those same words, and he's saying, look, these guys weren't running. They weren't in the race. In fact, they didn't know there was a race to be run. And yet they won the race. Now, how do you run a, win a race without even running? That just doesn't make sense. But that's exactly what you got here. Many Gentiles who did not actively run after the prize. And what's the prize here? Righteousness, a right standing with the one true God. They weren't trying to get that. 
They were living for themselves, living in their lust, living in the darkness of their mind, but they got it. And how did they get that right standing? By responding in faith to the gospel of Christ when it was preached to them. And so this is very, very interesting. The Gentiles won the race. They reached the goal without ever trying, without even running. They didn't even know there was a race, much less that they should be running in it. And so here's what happened. They were living in their sin, and they were fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. They weren't thinking of God. They were thinking of self. And along came the Apostle Paul or some other Christian, and they would preach the gospel. And here's what they would say to these people who were just pursuing their own flesh and their own worldly lusts and the the desires of the devil. Here's what they said. We've got bad news for you. You've fallen short of God's glory. In fact, I've got more bad news for you. When you fall short of God's glory, the only thing you earn and deserve is eternal death. Physical, spiritual, relational, emotional death. Separation from God. That's what you, that's what you have earned with your sin. This is bad news. And it will result in eternal separation, torment, and a conscious hell. But there's good news. And the good news is this. Christ has come. God has come to do for you what you could not do for yourself. Christ has come. God has come in the flesh. Merry Christmas. He has come to do for you what you could never have done for yourself. He met God's perfect standard. He died in your place. He rose again from the dead. No one's ever done that. This is God. This is man This is the perfect man, and he rose to give you new life. And so I give you an offer. I present to you a gift, a choice. Repent. Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And you know what the Gentiles said who weren't running for righteousness? They said, that sounds good. That's me. I'm a sinner separated from God. I'm, I, I'm tired of this life. I'm going to turn from this and I'm going to receive Jesus as my Savior. And they received a perfect right standing with the one true God. They won the race of righteousness without even trying, without even entering the race. Now, here's the point. Paul is emphasizing two things here that are in, interconnected. Now, here's where you got to get your thinking cap on a little bit here this morning. He's emphasizing God's sovereignty in unconditional election and human responsibility in accepting Christ. And here's why, here's why I say that. God chose the Gentiles unconditionally to be saved. How is that being emphasized in verse 30? How is unconditional election being emphasized in verse 30? Well, what's unconditional mean? Unconditional mean there is nothing that you could do to earn or deserve this. And what does he say about them in verse 30? What's it say? They did not pursue. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know, if there was conditions, they, weren't, they, they, they not only weren't meeting the conditions, they weren't even trying to meet the conditions. That's unconditional election. And yet God saved them on the basis of what? Nothing that they have done. So there's an emphasis here that, uh, in fact, it takes us back to verse 16. Look at verse 16 again. 
Look at verse 16. So then, it, the mercy of God, the right standing with God, depends not on what? Human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So he's emphasizing that. And yet in verse 30, he's also, he's not only emphasizing God's choice of them, but he's emphasizing their choice of God by faith alone. They weren't righteous and they admitted it. They had nothing to offer God and they admitted it. And so they said, I come to you empty handed and receive what you have for me. So do you see how in verse 30, He's emphasizing two things. God chose them unconditionally because they weren't even running the race. And yet they chose God because they knew they were not running the race and had nothing, you know, would never win it. And therefore, you must be the runner for me. And so in a sense, they tagged Jesus and said, you're it. You ran the race. You won the race. And now you're offering me what you won and what you earned, and what you deserve, I'll take it. It's a free gift. It's mercy. I need it. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that, verse 30, such a contrast to the self-righteousness of many of the Jewish people you find in the Gospels? Remember the self-righteous Pharisee who prayed to God, looking up to heaven, beating his chest, saying, I am so glad I am not as other men. I am running the race for righteousness. And look, I'm ahead of you, and I'm ahead of him, and I'm far better than him. Oh, God, you're lucky to have me on your race team. You can just go ahead and give me the prize now, because I've arrived. And Jesus said that man went down not justified, not right in God's eyes. You see, he was running the race, but he wasn't going to win it. Think, too, of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler said, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus laid out that half of the Ten Commandments that focuses on human responsibility. And he said, well, I've done that since I was a kid. Oh, really, rich young ruler? How about selling all that you have and following me, the Son of God? Because what's the first commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Have no other gods before me. See, I could do this part, but now you're getting to the heart of the matter. Do you see the difference? The Gentiles, they weren't running that race. They had nothing to brag about in prayer. In fact, they weren't even sure what prayer was. and, 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 And they just weren't in the race. And God saved them. Well... What we learn from the rich young ruler and the self-righteous Pharisee praying is how to be religious and not become a Christian. How to be religious and not become a Christian. You see, that's the second point you find in these verses, 30 through 32. It's not only how to be a Christian without being religious, but how to be religious and not be a Christian. Look at verses 31 through 32. But, there's a big contrast there, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And that as if is very important in your text because what he's saying there is this. They thought they could do it by works, but you can't do it by works. But they thought you could, and so they ran, and they ran, and they ran, and they never won. 
the prize. Notice what it says in your notes. The majority of Jews who did actively run after the prize. But the prize is very interesting here. The prize that they ran after was the law's promised right standing with the one true God, but they didn't get it. Why? Because they pursued it as if it could be reached by their own works. You see, they were very proud of themselves in relation to unsaved people. They said, we have the word of God. You don't. We know the one true God. You worship many gods. We worship the right God. But the problem was, and in their pride, they ran after the law as if they could attain the righteousness that it revealed by their good works. And they didn't win. Instead, they took the law as a means of being saved and tried in every way to keep the law in order to be saved by their own works. The only problem is it did not work. It will not work. It will never work for you, for me, to try to be religious, try to be Baptist, try to be evangelical, try to be conservative, try to be Democrat or Republican, try to be a good person and somehow win God's acceptance. It will never work. You could read your Bible every day. You could read your Bible in 90 days. You could witness to someone every week. You could come to church every time the door is open. You could do all of that thinking God is now pleased with me and the reality is you're going to never attain God's acceptance. See, here's what one commentator said about this. They confusedly identified their own works in which they took pride with the absolute standard the law required. Their whole effort was not grounded in faith, but in works designed to gain acceptance. Now, look again at verse 31. I'm going to just take a few minutes to explain something that no one understands. And I don't either. But I just at least want you to know what I don't understand. Okay? So you don't get the idea that I understand everything. Now, look at verse 31. Here's what he says. I mean, again, look at verse 30 and 31. Verse 30, what are the Gentiles pursuing? Look at your text. Verse 30, what are they pursuing? Righteousness. What did they attain? Righteousness, but what kind of righteousness? By faith. Okay, now, the contrast is set up in verse 31. Now you got Gentiles contrasted with Israel. Now, what did Israel pursue? You would expect them to, Paul to say, let me put it up this way. You got the Gentiles, and they're, they're not pursuing righteousness, okay? But they get it, all right? Now, when you come to the Jews, a contrast, they are, you would expect them to pursue they are pursuing righteousness, but they did not get it, right? Wouldn't that be what you expect? <coughs> but notice what they said. Instead of saying they pursued righteousness, we would expect them to say they pursued righteousness or at least the righteousness of the law or according to the law. But Paul reverses these words and he says they're pursuing a law, literally, of righteousness. They're pursuing a law of righteousness, and they did not get, and it says they did not get righteousness. What does the text say? They did not get what? 
They didn't get the law. Now, there is a whole bunch of ink and a whole lot of pages written about trying to figure out what, what, what is going on here. What is going on here? Well, I don't pretend to understand it all, and there's several ways you could explain it. But it all comes down, I think, here's what he's saying. Here's what I think Paul's trying to emphasize. Is these guys, they didn't know the law, so they weren't pursuing the law. What they weren't pursuing was God, the one true God, and His righteousness. They were just like you and I before we were saved. We had no clue who God really was, and we had no clue what He really demanded. Amen? We didn't know that. We weren't pursuing that. But when the gospel came, and you may have had to heard it, heard it two times, five times, ten times. It may have, t- may have taken a couple years for you hearing it, but there came a point where God preached to you the bad news and the good news, and you said, now I get it. I don't measure up, He does, and they got righteousness. They got righteousness, a right standing with God. Now, the Jews, by contrast, they were like some of us who grew up in church. They knew God's word. They knew what God expected. The problem is, instead of pursuing God's perfect righteousness, they started pursuing what? Keeping the law. Keeping the law. And what Paul, I think, is trying to say, and this is, there's different opinions. This is what I think he's trying to say. They pursued a law that was supposed to lead to righteousness. It was supposed to lead them ultimately to who? It was supposed to lead them to Christ. It was supposed to show them, look, you can't measure. Here's what I expect. Ten commandments. One, two, three, four. You can't even get beyond commandment one. But I expect you to do all ten. And James says, if you disobey my word in one command, it's like you've disobeyed them all. And if you're going to get saved by keeping the law, then how much of the law do you have to keep? How often do you have to keep it? And from where? From the heart. Whoa. And so what he says is they pursued kind of this, this, this law-keeping idea, but guess what? They couldn't even keep the standard that they were, running, that they were trying to keep. I think that's what he's trying to say. Is, look, righteousness is not even an issue in this. Why? Because they're trying to keep their rules, and guess what? They can't even keep, they can't even keep their rules. And what they missed was what the law was always pointing to. And what did the law always point to? Christ. And so when Christ came, there was too many Jews who were religious and running the wrong race for the wrong reason, pumping their chest in self-righteous pride, and they crucified our Lord. But thank God in His grace and His mercy and His electing love, there was a Joseph. There was a Mary, there was an Elizabeth, there was a Simeon, there was an Anna who did not try to measure up to the law but realized the law pointed to the coming Savior. And so when the baby Jesus was brought into the temple, the true Jew, the true Israel said, this is the one I've been waiting for because I don't measure up. You see, when Joseph and Mary offered up sacrifices, they didn't think they were righteous because they did that. They offered those sacrifices. Why? Because they weren't righteous. And that animal sacrifice pointed to the one who was coming who would be righteous. 
But many a Jew would offer up those animal sacrifices and say, See there, I read Leviticus. I understand. Well, that's a pretty big thing to do to understand Leviticus. I understand Leviticus. I offered up this sacrifice. God's pleased with me. And see, if you take that kind of pride in an animal sacrifice, why would you want to accept a weak Nazarene from Galilee? I don't need him. I'm keeping the law. I'm good enough. I'm on God's team. I'm running the race. And yet, the law that I think I'm keeping, even that I cannot keep. But I'm too proud to admit it. And I have to admit it if I'm going to accept Jesus as my Savior. I've shared this many times as I've uh, I've taken the challenge to share the gospel more than ever. That's what I find. Is that everybody's excited about the gospel. Yeah, I'm bad, I'm bad. Until you get to the point where you say you're so bad that you're not good enough for God. And that's when people say, whoa, wait a minute. I'm not as bad as Joe. I'm not as bad as Mary. Who are you to say I'm bad? Well, I'm not anybody, but the glory of God is the standard. And we've all fallen short. And until you and I humble ourselves and say, I can't do it, but he's done it. I'll turn from my sin, my pride, my self-righteousness, my religiosity, my, my, my scorekeeping, my rule-keeping, my judging of others, measuring and comparing one another against one another, forgetting that the one standard, the one judge is the Lord Jesus Christ. Until I can let go of that, I'm not going to win the race. Here's what uh, one commentator said. The Gentiles, sunk in carelessness and sin, have attained the favor of God, while the Jews, to whom religion was a business, have utterly failed. So here's two conclusions that we've come to so far. One, God's sovereignty does not eliminate human responsibility. Two, salvation is our response to his ability to save us by faith alone in Christ alone. And by the way, I I should have said this earlier. In Philippians 3, where the same wording of running and obtaining is found in Philippians 3, what does Paul say at the beginning of chapter 3 of Philippians? He says, look, I'm the Pharisee of the Pharisees. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm... You know what he was saying? I was the best runner of all the Jews. I was at the front of the race. I was leading the pack. And then what happened in chapter 3? He says, I counted it all as what? As dung, as manure for the sake of righteousness in Christ by faith alone. See, he had to turn away from all of this law-keeping, pride, and self-righteousness. And that was hard to do. And yet, by God's grace, he did it. So salvation is our response to his ability to save us by faith alone. There's a third conclusion, and here it is. Salvation requires a faith response. Salvation requires a faith response in what Christ has done for you, not what you do for God. Now, I want to read to you 
a quote by a, a, a brethren preacher. His name is C.H. McIntosh. He took part in uh, several revivals in the 1800s, and he had, he had a struggle with this idea of God's sovereignty and human responsibility because here's what happens. We can get so focused on God's sovereignty that we think there's no need for calling people to accept Christ. We can get so focused that it's all on God that we're like, oh, I don't. You know, it's, it's like they said to uh, William Carey when he wanted to be a missionary to India. A strong believer in sovereignty stood up and said, young man, sit down. If God wants to save those people, he will. You see, that's an overreaction to what the Bible teaches about sovereignty. Well, the C.H. McIntosh, he fought this same battle. And listen to what he says. I like this. Let us carefully note this record. Let all preachers note it. Our divine master called upon sinners to repent and believe the gospel. Some would have us to believe that it is a mistake to call upon persons dead in trespasses, dead in sins to do anything. And here's how they argue it. How can those who are dead repent? They're incapable of any spiritual movement. They must first get the power ere they can either repent or believe. Here's what these people who overemphasize, they're called hyper-Calvinists, overemphasize God's sovereignty. They said this, we, we dare not preach the gospel to anyone until we're convinced God's already done a work in them. Okay, so I got to wait until I see God really moving in you. Now, we already complicate evangelism enough. Can you imagine throwing that into the mix? And so it paralyzes you. Young man, sit down. When God's ready to save them, he'll do it. Can those who are dead repent? They are incapable. They must first get the power ere they can repent or believe. Now, here's what McIntosh said. What is our reply to this? A very simple one indeed. Our Lord knows better than all the theologians in the world what ought to be preached. Can I hear an amen? He knows all about man's condition. Now, here's what Jesus knows about man's condition. His guilt, his misery, his spiritual death, his utter helplessness, his total inability to think a single right thought, to utter a single right word, to do a single right act. And yet, Jesus called upon men to repent. This is quite enough for us. It's no part of our business to seek to reconcile seeming differences. It may seem to us difficult to reconcile man's utter powerlessness with his responsibility. But God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. It is our happy privilege and our bound duty to believe what he says and to do what he tells us. This is true wisdom and it yields solid peace. Now, what is McIntosh saying? He's simply saying this. No matter how great God's sovereignty is, our sovereign God has commanded us to preach the gospel and call men everywhere to repent and believe, and that's their responsibility. That's our responsibility. And so you see this point. Salvation requires a faith response. Verse 32 why? Why did the Jews, why are the, so many Jews condemned to hell? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They are the ones who stumbled. No one goes to hell because God eternally chose to send them to hell before the world was ever created. We go to hell if we go to hell because we chose to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ or the knowledge of God that we have.
Now, third conclu- fourth conclusion, fourth and final conclusion. Paul ends this section. He ends chapter 9 focused on the one that we ought to always focus on, and that's Jesus Christ. Fourth conclusion is this. Christ is either the stumbling block of our condemnation. He's either the stumbling block or the cornerstone of our salvation. And so we have Christ right there in the center of all this. And he's one of two things. And yet he's the same person. And he can be one of, he's one of those things to everybody. So we have the cross. And I love that, uh, that uh, it looks like a, uh, uh, the corner of a building and the cross in there. And, and there's the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And the question becomes this morning, what is he to you? Is he a stumbling stone? And by the way, the idea is they're, they're running this race. They're running this race. They're reaching for the goal. And there's not just this little rock. There's this monstrous boulder. And I kind of get this picture. You ever seen those uh, Christmas toys where they bump into things and they just keep trying? You know what I'm talking about? And they just keep trying and they just keep trying and they just keep until their batteries run out or they break. And you know what? Everybody that tries to earn God's righteousness by their good works, they just keep bumping into Christ. Until they wear out or they break, and He breaks them at the final judgment. Or, in our effort to earn God's righteousness, we hear the gospel and we go, Oh, it's not about what I do. It's about what He's done. He's the cornerstone. He's the sure foundation. He's the tested stone, Isaiah says. The stone that has been tested by God and found to be perfect in His righteousness. Oh, instead of breaking myself against him, I can build my life on him as long as I turn from my sins and place my faith in him. You see, Paul brings together these two, he brings two passages in Isaiah together to highlight divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Look again at verse 33. As it is written, God is once again speaking, and here's what God says. Behold, I am laying... I am laying. This is a work that I am doing. This is my way of salvation. It's my son who in Isaiah 53 is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. It is my son, my way of salvation, my righteousness that I'm laying down. Now, notice what he's laying down. I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion. Well, I'm sorry, in Zion 8, but look at what it is. He knows when he lays it, what is it going to be? Look at verse 33. What's it going to be? A stone of what? Stumbling and a rock of what? Offense. And particularly, who does he know is going to stumble over it? And who does he know is going to be offended by it? The Jews. This is his sovereign purpose. That's what he said in... in, 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 in uh, In uh, uh, Romans 9, I'm doing this, and yet I know that my people will reject my way. Who's responsible? They are. Who's sovereign? 
God is. And yet in laying that stone that will be a stumbling to many and an offense to many, notice the next part of verse 33. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In fact, this same verse is repeated in Romans 10, in the famous 10, 9 through 13. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He keeps hammering this point home. And so what he's saying is this. For many, this is going to be a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. But everyone... And you know what he means by that? Everyone, Jew and Gentile. You know what he means? Everybody that's religious and not religious. Everyone that's a pagan and everyone that's pious. Everyone that grew up in church and everyone that's never darkened the door of a church. Everyone who tries to play it right and be a goody two-shoes and everyone that's messed it up and lived in the gutter. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I don't know about you, but that's good news. Because I grew up in church, but I didn't know God. I heard a good talk every day, but I didn't hear the word of God every Sunday. And I was dying inside because I was separated from my maker. And I didn't know why I was so unfulfilled. Though on the surface, everything looked pretty good. Wow. So he brings together these two verses in Isaiah one that was positive, one that's negative, and he puts it in the same one because he's trying to say, look, what I'm doing is going to cause some to be condemned, and I will get glory from that. And what I am doing in Christ will cause some to be saved, and I will get glory from that. But please mark it down. When these go to hell, it's because they chose to reject my Christ, my Savior. And when these go to heaven, please understand, it's because I chose them. And enabled them to respond to me and to my son. Wow, that's some powerful stuff. All right? So you got there the little picture, the little diagram. What should we conclude then from Romans 9? Look at the last part. Should we conclude that there's no need for faith? (laughs) God forbid. No. Unconditional election results in God-saving promises being fulfilled to all peoples, Jew and Gentile, pious, pagan, God, uh, 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 religious, non-religious, but how? By grace through faith in Christ without eliminating human responsibility. So I end with this at this Christmas season. Don't stumble over God's sovereign cornerstone. Don't stumble. In these same four responses that we've seen throughout Romans 9, why is it the same four? Because we're learning the same truth each week. Be saved today. Place your faith in Christ alone. Our responsibility is to repent. Listen, your responsibility this morning is not to figure out what God's doing. It's to figure out what God has done and receive it in Jesus Christ. So please be saved today. Don't go through another Christmas without Christ. Secondly, for many of you, be thankful when you were not even aware of God's righteousness. You weren't even in the race. You were on the sidelines of sin God chose you, God pursued you, God called you to himself through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be thankful. Amen? But also be humble. Because it's not anything we did, are doing, or will ever do that saves us. It's all of God who chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And he called us to himself by the gospel. Man, we should be humble. 
someone emailed me a response about what they're learning through these lessons. And, and, and the thing that they highlighted was the reality that, wow, out of this mass historical thing that God's doing, he took notice of me. Me, who was not taking notice of him. That's humbling. And then, class, I hope you'll be bold this Christmas and next year. Share the gospel with all people, for it's God's will that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Don't you eliminate people from God's saving power just because they look so hard and stubborn. Don't you dare presume upon God's sovereignty and God's desire, long-suffering wrath, His withholding of His wrath. Don't you dare presume that God has given up on anyone because we don't know that. All we know is that anyone, no matter how bad they are, even if they're, not, even if they're running in the wrong direction, if they'll call on the name of the Lord, they'll be saved. And they're not going to call unless you share the gospel with them. And just understand that there's no other name given among men in heaven or on earth. There's no other name but the name of Jesus. Is he your stumbling stone today? Or is he the cornerstone of your faith? Christ and him crucified. Let's pray. Father, we've, we've sought to exalt your son today. Because that's what Romans 9 does. That's what you do. You exalt your son who causes everyone in this room to make a decision for him or against him. But in making that decision, if we reject him, the blame is all ours. If we accept him, the glory and credit is all yours. And if we do accept him, then you bring into our lives the forgiveness of sins, the new life. Everything's changed. We become a new creature and we should live with a humble boldness, God. And so I pray this Christmas that we would worship you, not just as the babe in the manger, but as we sang today, the king has been born. The king is coming. And so, Lord, we give you all the credit, all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.